Good morning, Redemption. My name is Jake. I'm one of your pastors, and uh, here did an awesome job on the All of Life interview and her epiphany, but it makes kind of steals some of the thunder of my opening sermon illustration. Um, so I was at Taylor Swift last night. Um, just kidding, I didn't go to Taylor Swift, but that'd be really funny <laughs> if that was like, oh, that was a, well, she took it, so can't use Taylor Swift. Um, Taylor Swift has nothing to do with Isaiah. I mean, maybe she could, but I'm sure there's some way. Uh, but that's not what we're going to look at today. We're going to jump into Isaiah. Go ahead and open up Isaiah uh, chapter 52, verse 13. Open up your Bibles and go ahead and flip to there or pull out your phones. I want us to read together uh, out loud the entirety of the passage. So that's going to be a little bit different, but I want to just read it all together to let it wash over us, to hear it before we even start. And it'll be on the screen as well, so you can follow along. So here it goes. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many who were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For what which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastise that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes an intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd open up our eyes to a beautiful, very famous and well-known passage and that we might see your son Jesus so clearly and worship him. Amen. So on Monday, we get together as a team and we talk about what we're gonna preach on and bring our outlines. And so I brought my outline to the team and, and they asked me, what's the big idea of the sermon this week? And I said, well, the big idea is Jesus died for our sins. And there was like a little tension internally, even as I said that, because um, it felt like, like really, that's the most creative thing that you came up with after like a week of preparing for that. Um, and then Thursday came around and uh, I was working next to Mark, and he's like, all right, you've worked through it through the week. What's the big idea? Like the creative title you've come up with. And I was like, well, the big idea for the sermon this week is Jesus died for your sins. And internally, I'm thinking like, okay, like, how did I not come up with a more creative title? Um, but the internal dilemma that I had all week long is that here's, this is, this is one of the, the most well-known Old Testament passages. It's beautifully poetic. It's quoted a ton within the New Testament. And in summary, I mean, really the whole thing, you read it, could be summarized down to the servant dies for the sins of the people. Uh, this isn't what anybody expected, but it is the will of God. That's it. So there you go. There's the whole idea. Go get your kids. We're done. Um, <laughs> But I mean, just as I'm preparing and writing this whole week, I'm like, how do I say better what a 2,500-year-old poem that is well-known throughout the world and all of many of the New Testament writers applied to Jesus can, what am I gonna say more creatively than that? So the big idea is still, Jesus died for your sins. <laughs> and I, but I started thinking about my own story because I heard that probably like a thousand times when I was a kid growing up in church, uh, yet I walked away. So... If that's it, um, yeah, what more is it to there? And as we were praying as a team this week, uh, John Crawford, one of the other pastors here, uh, said that what he felt like God might be saying uh, is that this is an invitation that we would not just hear it, but we would feel it. Uh, and that really connected to me and my own story too, because I heard it a lot growing up. So how do you take something that might be familiar from just hearing about it and feeling it. And I, I, I thought of this book I've been reading called Wired for Story. And she, the author, Lisa Cron, has a, like this little uh, phrase in her book that I'll put up on the screen. It says, in October 2006, nearly 6,000 people worldwide perished in hurricane-induced floods. And then she goes, quick, what do you feel reading that sentence? My guess is you feel a little confused by the question. Now close your eyes and imagine a wall of water coming straight towards a small boy who clings desperately to his frantic mother. Trying to soothe him, she whispers, don't worry, baby, I'm here. I won't let you go. She feels him relax in the moment of the deafening calm just before the water rips him from her arms. 
The sound of his cry above the cacophony of destruction, trees ripped from the ground, houses smashed to splinters will haunt her for the rest of her life. That and his look of utter surprise as he was swept away, as if to say, I trusted you, it seemed to say. And the author then asks, now how do you feel? How do you feel depends on the story's details and the whole picture that brings you into it. So Jesus died for your sins, but there's actually a missing part of that phrase, even biblically. What is it? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. We miss the accordance with the scriptures part the full story, all the specific details of what is actually being said in a sentence that is deceptively simple but can be mined down to infinity. Every word has a full history in that phrase and passages like Isaiah are exactly how we hear it and feel it. So the first thing that we need to hear within that sentence is that Jesus died for our sins. So the big idea is still the same. It's gonna be the same the whole time. But the, I want us to take a look at what Isaiah says about that part. Because the final phrase at the end of this poetic song in Isaiah 53, 12 says, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for our transgressors. When we say Jesus died for our sins, what is the full story of sin? I mean, I heard some version of this statement growing up many times. What Jesus did was die for my sins. But at times it seemed to rise to no more significance for my heart than as if somebody had said, uh, Jesus held the elevator for me. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Really polite. But if it closed, I would have just taken the stairs. So the first question is, what is the backstory of sin when we say the servant of Isaiah died for the sins of the world, Jesus died for our sins, what categories are we even talking about when we say sin? Because if you've been paying attention so far in Isaiah, the dominant language that's being talked about this whole time has not been necessarily of sin, but idolatry. The idols of Babylon and God is going to finally once and for all show how he is king over all of the idols that cannot save. That's the picture so suddenly when you get to this last servant song, and we talked about last week, the hope of exile is in who will get them out, the servant. But when we get to this part, suddenly we're talking about sin and transgression and, tran and chastisement and iniquity, this whole spectrum of words to give this biblical, biblical picture. And why does it suddenly shift from idolatry to sin? The other problem is that our culture uh, really doesn't even have the same kind of language as the Bible for sin. Basically, it means a, world that we're, a word in our culture where it's the things that you basically want to do most, but you know might be no-nos. Uh, yeah, it's not great for me, but as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Uh, so we use the word sin most commonly in American culture to describe ice cream, chocolate, and sex. And it paints the picture that God's biggest problem is that things taste good or feel good. And he gets really bothered by that. And so he's gonna have to do something about it. And it kind of just really ruins the picture. The other problem is that in our culture, we celebrate more than probably any other time in history, I'd imagine, the individual and the self-made identity. 
So in that environment, there really is no language for sin that I do. We have tons of language for sin that is done to me or sin that I'm bothered by, but it's always out there. Everyone is traumatized, but no one's a traumatizer. Everyone can list the people groups that they believe are the most ignorant, but no one can imagine how they would ever fit into a group that someone else would think is ignorant. So you hear lots of stories about abuse, which is common and horrifying, but I've never heard anyone confess to being an abuser. I'm not saying these realities aren't true and that our culture is wrong and trying to use language to grasp what is going on with us. What I'm just trying to say is that it's pretty much out there and there's no real language of things that I do. At best, it's things, I know I shouldn't do it, but you know, as long as it's not hurting anybody. No language that matches the biblical language of rebellion against God. The Bible does have really good language actually when it comes to sin. Because the Bible has no issue doing something that almost nobody in our culture I imagine would ever be brave enough to do, which is tell you what it means to be human. What it means to be human according to the Bible is to reflect the image of God. That is your purpose. That's why in the story of the Bible, God never let anyone make an image of himself. He already has images. There's a bunch in this room. And so to be truly human is to be loving because God is loving. To be truly human is to be creative, all of us, because God creates. Sin then is to be less than human, than we were meant to be. And so thou shall not covet is a problem because human beings, when they covet, no longer reflect a God who gives everything, but they begin to reflect a broken image of a picture of never enough, never satisfied, always demanding more, even if we have to take. The problem of sin, though, goes even deeper than that. It's much more sinister. It's not just a, oops, I made a mistake. I'm really sorry. Because if you're meant to reflect God and by living a life fully human, we image and cast out our God-given creativity and power to reflect who God is, what do we reflect if we sin? Where does our God-given creativity and power and worship go? If it doesn't go to God, where does it go? And that's where Isaiah makes sense when it starts to talk about idols. Idols are what happens when you take all of human creativity, power, worship, and you begin to sin. And what it does is basically attach an umbilical cord from yourself into something dark and twisted that begins to grow called an idol. In ancient Israelite, it would be idols of images of stone and wood and, and, and metal. But in our culture, we talked about how even when Jim preached, those images can just be as simply ourselves. But every time we sin, it begins to give literally our power over to these created things, these sinister entities, because they are parasitic. They cannot exist without what we give to them. And so what happens is that idols begin to enslave humanity because they need that worship. They need that constant giving over to that thing or they don't even exist. And so the problem of sin gets much more complicated, much more sinister, much more dark. And these things even take on a spiritual attitude in the Old Testament. And the idols begin to have power over us. And the best language that I can think of for sin is that it is like cancer. 
what began as a normal group of cells meant to bring life and function for flourishing mutate. And as they mutate, at first they're not life-threatening, but they are really life-threatening when they form together in a mass, a tumor, an idol. And as they form a tumor, um, if that cancer tumor is not removed, it will grow and suffocate out the rest of the life within that person. Sin is like cancer. We're meant for life, not death. And what began with our entire beings meant to worship towards God and reflect him has mutated to reflect an idol, but it'll kill us. And it doesn't matter what type of idol, just like it doesn't matter what type of cancer you have. What, ma- what makes sin like cancer such a problem is that when it starts to infect organs, you can't just remove the heart if you have heart cancer. So what do you do with that kind of problem? That is what Isaiah has been trying to solve for 15 chapters. Humanity's problem, Israel's problem, is sin, heart cancer. And God wants life. So what is he gonna do? So maybe now with that picture, a little bit broader, a little bit bigger, Jesus died for his sins, but maybe take the whole of scripture to get a better idea of what sin is. Maybe then when you hear it, we don't necessarily feel the depth of that passage because when the Bible says sin, we don't have that biblical view of sin. Maybe you minimize your part in sin. It's not a willful chosen rebellion against the God who I was made to give my worship to. It's just, I wanna define good and evil for myself. But maybe doing some things that really don't seem that big a deal as long as they don't hurt anyone else. So when you hear Jesus died for your sins, it's as if he grabbed the elevator door for you. Thanks, Jesus, appreciate it. And maybe you minimize the horror of sin because you don't have that big a breadth of a scope of biblical sin. And so like me growing up, honestly, I would have walked into church as I grew up, sat in those chairs, and the scope of what I knew about sin just made me feel really guilty about what I had done all week. And I had no spectrum for God's good and beautiful hatred of what was going on in my life. Yes, Jesus died for our sins but sin needs a whole different picture and all of the background of the Old Testament for us to hear that simple phrase. So then if that's the story, heart cancer, how is God gonna deal with that? We know Israel's stuck in exile and we know it's not because he's not good at saving people. It's because they have a problem that he must do something about. We know last week it will be through the servants That's who, but how's that actually gonna play out? How is God going to deal with that? And so in the final servant song of Isaiah here, what we all read together, you get the crescendo, the climax of all of God's history towards saving the people and how he's actually going to deal with it. Jesus died for our sins. Behold, it says, my servant shall act wisely. He'll be lifted up and high and shall be exalted. Yes, the servant's gonna have victory but no one in Israel would have ever expected what this final servant song would say. The servant died, was beaten beyond recognition. And so the next part of the phrase that we need to pay attention to is when it says Jesus died for our sins is the Jesus part. Because we have no idea 
often lost on us who have gone to church growing up, the craziness of the statement that one Jewish man 2,000 years ago, the son of some woman named Mary died like everybody else, and somehow that took on the sin of the entire universe. It's a mathematical problem to begin with. One man, whole universe. And the final poem of Isaiah about the servant prepares us for the insanity of what it's gonna sound like to them back then. It says his appearance is gonna be so mutilated. This servant's gonna be so beaten up, so beyond even looking like a human anymore. And that's how he's going to sprinkle and clean the nations. That's how his purifying act is gonna happen. This servant's not gonna look like a king. He's not gonna look victorious. In fact, everybody would ignore him entirely. This servant is gonna be a man filled with sorrow connected to sadness. That is how the story is gonna play out, which doesn't make sense in the context of this entire book. Because the last thing that God just said is good news. You ready? Good news. Here it comes. I'm gonna win. Your God will reign Israel. And he's gonna do it through the servant. Are you ready? He's gonna be beaten up beyond recognition and a man full of sorrow and sadness. Behold your hero. And so we miss that when... Someone's got it. And so I know we, we would hear a poem like this and we would go, yes, 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 this is that poem. It's totally about Jesus, but slow down, church. We need to build a little bit more of a historical imagination before that phrase is gonna punch. Try and wrap your head around what it would have sounded like for Israel. Imagine you're an Israeli refugee in ancient Babylon. You're fried and exhausted from a week of basically working in slavery. And you hear from a few Jewish friends that there's somebody preaching the messages of Isaiah and reading some of his writings. And it's good news. You can't wait. And so you go and you begin to listen and let this passage wash over you of good news. God reigns. You're beyond traumatized already. And as you hear the good news, it says God is gonna come back. He's gonna win a spark of hope embers in your heart as you wait in exile. And then imagine standing there listening and it says, behold the servant, he's gonna be rejected. No one's gonna pay attention to him. What he's gonna look like? Someone who's been beaten beyond recognition, like an average ignorable person, unlikable, and his life will be filled with sadness. Good news. What emotions would you feel? Do you think some people just walked away? You know what? Forget it. I'm done. Maybe the gods of Babylon really did win. Maybe some did hang on. Maybe some just tried to hear what it would say and had the capacity to ask, why would God do it this way? Why would the servant come this way? Maybe it's because of the problem of sin in the first place. Think about it. This sinister thing that has infected the world and humanity, it doesn't just kill, it doesn't just enslave, it begins to twist and change how you see and how you think. And so your standards for what are good and true and beautiful no longer match God's. And so what is God gonna do then? If he comes to save a world that defines victory in a way that's shaped by idols, what is his victory gonna look like? What if God comes in power, but our definition of power is so affected by sin that it looks like domination? 
What if God is going to get victory, but our very categories of victory are broken? And what if God is going to come to the rescue, the world that he loves, but our minds are so twisted by sin that we don't even know what love looks like? What is God gonna do then? He's gonna send a servant, but it's not gonna be like anyone expected. So when we say Jesus died for our sins, you gotta know for them, that made no sense. And it should hit us at first of like, What if God came to save the world through a humble servant, but the world ignored him because we do not honor humility nor service? So yes, Jesus is that servant who came and died. But without the story, we miss why this was so shocking to begin with. Why it's so crazy to say that a homeless, uneducated Jewish itinerant preacher who was kind, gentle, lowly, and hung out with everybody that the society hated somehow solved the problems of all of the brokenness of the world. That is the message we preach. So you can kind of give it to your friends who aren't Christian. Like, that sounds crazy. I know. How have you personally, church, grown used to the idea of Jesus dying for your sin? How have you heard it so much outside of the context of the story that it's become a callous phrase? Where is the idea grown too familiar to you and it no longer warms your heart anymore and you've become like the church in Revelation where their love has grown cold? Just right now, for a second, ask the Holy Spirit. Where has your heart become like that? Yes, Jesus died for our sins. But that language if it's not in accordance with the scriptures, we'll memorize it, practice it, learn it, get used to it, and not feel it. So how? How on earth could this one man take care of one of the biggest problems the world has ever seen? It's in the heart of the poem. Jesus died for our sins, but the next bit that Isaiah gives us is that the middle part of that phrase, Jesus died for our sins. In Isaiah uh, 53, four through nine, you heard it read. It says that this servant's gonna be pierced like a man who was jumped and stabbed to death. The language is that'll be crushed like a slave as his knees buckle under the burden of a stone as his master whips him. He's gonna take on to himself the welts and wounds and bruises of someone who was hit again and again and again, and he'll be taken away by oppression. It's going to be unjust, unfair, and ugly. The ones he came to will not recognize him until it is too late because they'll think nothing more of him than another dead body to toss in a grave. But somehow, shockingly, he's not a victim. It says that like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, so he opened not his mouth. He's not a victim. He is choosing to walk into this. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't fight back. Though everything in here is done because of injustice and you're seeing the story play out of sin while no one recognizes him. And it's clearly agony, but he takes it on purposefully. We find out that it is the will of God and the servant united together in one. If all the world is like sheep that have gone astray, 
He is the one obedient sheep to God's will. If all of Israel is like sheep who have ditched their shepherd to go after idols, he's the one sheep who does what Israel never could do. He takes it silently in the face of injustice. And what this message of comfort and hope that came to God's people looked like, your God reigning, it was done through his dying. This is how sin was going to be dealt with. And I once had a a friend of mine, we had spent weeks together uh, going through this course where we talked about how Jesus died for the sins of the world probably 30 different ways. And at the end of this whole thing, we spent a bunch of time together and we talked late into the night and her and her fiance had sat down eating a bag of Doritos. And she goes, okay, I don't understand why Jesus had to die for the sins of the world after we had spent weeks talking about nothing but that. And as I listened to her, I was like, man, I honestly just had this conviction that you cannot understand why unless you back up and tell the whole story. And so we backed up and we talked about the entire story of Israel and how that played out and how that actually tied to Jesus. And I was just talking to a couple of uh, college Jews this week and asked them a question of, hey, if, if uh, imagine this, could Jesus just have came immediately? I think they asked this question first. Like, could, why didn't Jesus just like teleport down the moment that Adam and Eve sinned and died right there? Like Adam and Eve like take from the fruit and then bam, there's like this guy named Jesus and he's like dying and they're like, oh, what? God's like taking care of sin, don't worry about it. And like, why didn't God do it that way? Because Israel did have a point. They're not God's mistake. That's why he gave them the law. Because what Israel functioned kind of metaphorically, if sin is the cancer that infects every part of the human race, then Israel and all their law and all their story is like a magical drug that would siphon all of the cancer cells into one area, to one people to one historical time where sin is seen for what it is at its worst. Still gonna kill everybody, you know, it's in the heart, so it's still a problem, but it's not everywhere. It's like really synthesized down into that one area in the heart. And that's what all of the servant songs seem to be leading up to the whole time is that Israel, the name of the servant, who we know as Jesus, is the one who comes and becomes what Israel was meant to do. He takes on all of the sin. And so what his suffering and what his dying is like him coming up to Israel and the world and taking the heart, that mass and tumorous cancery flesh, pulling it out and giving his own heart of life. And he takes it into himself because it's gotta go somewhere and then he dies in decay because of it. That is how sin is dealt with. Because then on the cross, in his suffering, in his dying, at the hands of injustice, sin is brought to its worst point of history and then it dies. He takes on your sin, lifts it off of your back, that burden which was crushing you. His death means our forgiveness. His beating means our healing. His piercing, our sin and dying and being destroyed. It is the full measure and capacity in this passage of every word that Isaiah can use of human brokenness. 
transgression, iniquity, all the things. He's just grabbing every term as if to say, there is nothing in the universe that the servant will not take and put on his own back, unifying with the will of God, because God is taking sin onto himself, willingly, not as a victim. So what part do you find unbelievable? What sin is so impossible for him to take off your shoulders and carry. Maybe not the unintentional sins, but what about the sins where we know and we plan to do them? Maybe that's really hard to see Jesus taking on. What about the sins that you've been doing over and over and over and over again so much that you are tired of yourself? Maybe that is what is so hard to see Jesus taking on. But hear the words of Isaiah. He took it on. And as this beautiful poem ends, it was something he would see out of the anguish his soul and be satisfied with what it would accomplish for you. Every single word that Isaiah could bring in a one poem for brokenness has been dealt with on behalf of humanity in Jesus. Now imagine what this would have sounded like to Israel back then. As they stood around in Babylon and they listened to the preaching of Isaiah. I'm sure at some point they just had to shrug and go, that sounds beautiful, but what a mystery. And so they waited. They went back into their lives and they waited for God to bring about this mysterious event. This message was to give them hope, but I think even more than that, it was to prepare all of humanity for what nobody would ever imagine would happen. For that which has not been told, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand, Isaiah said. One day it's gonna make sense. One day they're gonna see it, and they're gonna see it in one man, but not then. One day that day did come. It came for Peter. I think it finally made sense to him, this passage. I bet he wondered at how Jesus had the power to heal his mom from sickness and fever and could just make it instantly go away and take on her sickness and just heal. Like, I bet he wondered how that could work. But then, when he watched his Savior's skin bubble up and welt and peel as the Romans beat him again and again and again to the inch of his life while he stood off denying his friend. I bet that's when it made sense. With his wounds, we are healed. I bet for John, as he watched the whole time, trying not to fall to his knees in tears and simultaneously trying not to vomit as he watched his friend, his rabbi, beaten into a bloody pulp, being crushed, under the weight of the wooden beam of the cross, I bet in that moment it started to click with him when Isaiah says his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and that he was crushed for our iniquities. I bet when they hung him up on the cross, John in that moment began to see he shall be high and lifted up. Mary saw it, I guarantee. Jesus' mom, 
I bet she saw it when she, her baby boy, she used to rock in her arms at night, whisper to him loving words, pray over him for a good future, watch after him, teach him. I bet in that moment, things started to finally make sense when she watched him get run through with a spear and his blood and water spill out of his side. I bet that's when it clicked. He was pierced for our transgressions. Thank God for Isaiah because God prepared his people for what no one would ever believe. Nobody would have ever expected, and it's still hard to believe in this day and age, that God would so love the world that he would take on the problem of sin onto himself. Who could have ever expected God to be this good? Who could have ever expected and seen this come and had not God given us the whole story leading up to this moment? Jesus died for your sin in accordance with the scriptures. This phrase alone can be mined down to infinite depths. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, all used the servant songs, quoted them in some phrase or another to make sense of what Jesus did. Jesus dying was a servant dying for the sin of the world. This phrase is deceptively simple, but it is infinitely worshipful. That's why we gather every week on Sunday and we sing together because we need to be reminded in our heart of all the details of the story. It's why we meet weekly in our homes and encourage each other and remind each other that we are a story-shaped people and this Jesus is servant, he is our savior. And it's why we're about to eat bread and drink wine together as a family. And why we do it every week, because how beautiful the good news of Isaiah, our king, our God has become king. And he did it by giving his body and his blood. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you now would take the words of Isaiah, this beautiful poetic passage, and make Jesus come to light for us. That you would speak to us. That you would, yeah, just do whatever your spirit needs to do now in the hearts of your people. We love you. Amen.